Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor, the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be here on the show, you can share your opinions uh, from the listener hotline, number 303-832-0217. It is well known that the need for truck drivers is very high. And one way to make the training easier could be training you like you're playing a video game. Now, joining me now to talk about this is a guest I had back on the show a few years ago, Leo Waldenbeck. Leo is the co-founder and the head of growth for Zootobi Driver's Ed. It's a gamified e-learning platform. Leo, thanks again for coming back here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Yeah, great to be back. Thanks a lot for having me again. So I want to talk to you in just a minute about some of those driver's ed issues and behavior issues and truck driving issues. Uh, I know you are originally, you, you usually are from Sweden. I'm not talking to you from Sweden right now. I'm talking to you from Spain. How is it in Spain right now? <laughs> well, right now it's actually raining quite a lot. But uh, And the weird thing, I went, I traveled here from Sweden to get some good weather but I've only been getting rain. So <laughs> I'm quite devastated right now, but uh, I have to say the lifestyle in Spain is really good. So I, I, I'm enjoying it. How, how is the driving in Spain compared to the driving in Sweden? <laughs> it's uh, actually crazy. I can't believe that drivers here in Spain are surviving. Uh, but, you know, the on-ramps on the highways are much shorter. The drivers are driving much faster. Yeah, so I've had quite a shock, actually. It, it seems like there has to have been some changes. The last time we talked was November of 2020, and it, and it must have changed back in, in, in your home country of Sweden. R really, has the driving changed? Has the country changed? Has, uh, has life changed for you in the last uh, year and a quarter or so? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I would say a lot of things have changed, and, you know, people are um working from home a lot in sweden so the roads aren't as clogged anymore but also um i haven't you know for some reason this is really weird but i'm focused on america so i would say i don't have so much knowledge of like the statistics here in sweden i know a whole lot about the statistics what's happening in in america but i can't tell you how the driving has changed actually in sweden but i, I guess it's it's been on a similar trend so so it's getting more dangerous but to be quite honest, yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> okay. You know, because I was, it was interesting. I, I like to read up about driving styles and driving rules in different countries. I talked about what it would be like to drive in Qatar uh, in the last episode because the World Cup, right? And so I, I was just wondering, as I was reading through some of the rules uh, of the road in Sweden, and I found it interesting that if you're caught committing a, even a minor driving offense while tra traveling through Sweden, you could be given an on-the-spot fine up to 4,000 Swedish krona, about 400 U.S. dollars. Has, has that happened to you or, or people you know? Yeah, you know, for, fortunately it hasn't happened to me. But yeah, I do know a whole lot of people that have received some hefty fines. And that's kind of like some characteristic that's well known of Swedish roads that the rules are very tough. And, um, you know, we have extremely tough DUI rules, um, four times tougher than in the US. Um, and the other rules are also tough. So we have this thing called road to zero kind of, and that says like, 
the mission of Sweden is to get to road accidents and, and, and deaths um, down to zero. Um, and of course, we're far away from that, but that also shows kind of the mindset in Sweden um, and how they're treating and how we're treating um, road safety and road accidents. Yeah, yeah. the driving the uh, driving under the influence, the limit for all drivers is 002 uh, in Sweden, it is 0.08 here in the United States, at least in most states in the United States. And that random test can be carried out basically any time to drivers as they're m- moving around Sweden at-, at the request of the police, even if there's really no grounds for suspicion. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's kind of I think that's really good. In my opinion, um, the U.S. needs to be stricter when it comes to dr- drunk driving rules and I mean, we also see it in the statistics about 10,000 people die each year in the U.S. due to drunk driving accidents. And um, when we compare that to most other modern countries, it's really, really high. And the best, you know, comparison is actually the U.K. because the U.K. has the same alcohol laws, so the same strictness with 0.08 in blood alcohol concentration. And there, it's you, you can't even compare the U.S. numbers to the U.K. numbers. They've been actually they've been going down and they are much lower. Um, but the rest of Europe, when you're comparing them, you have to take into account that you uh, all drivers above 0.02 are actually in those statistics, whereas in the U.S., all of the drivers below 0.08 are not in those statistics. So it's kind of skewed the statistics. Yeah, it, it it's a it's a sport really for a lot of Americans to drink as much as they can and then get behind the wheel. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. um, it's 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 almost ingrained in people here to drink as much as they can, uh, and especially <laughs> yeah. in the rural areas. It's 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 sad, but it's it's different than in other parts of the world. So I think that's why we have those uh, the DUI problems here. Yeah, yeah, and and you know one more thing that we can see from from our research that we've done is that it's extremely community based. So we can see that the worst communities, the worst states, tend to be the worst states multiple years in the running. So it's the same states that topping that are topping and uh, the lists each year. My guest is Leo Waldenbach. He's the co-founder and the head of growth for uh, Zootobi. It's a driver's ed online, driver's ed like a gaming online uh, driver's ed uh, program. And, and let's remind, Leo, let's remind the listeners how your driver's ed program works before we really get into how it can teach truck drivers to drive. It, it's different than just being in a classroom, right? Isn't it uh, more like a, a video game? Yeah, you can say that, Jason. So what we have done is that we took the best parts of driver's education from all over the world. So Australia, Sweden, um, the United Kingdom, the United States kind of made this super course and looked at the practices. Okay, what's working here? What's not working? Can we use this in the U.S. to create better drivers? And then we made the course for the U.S. based out of that. So we have scientifically proven learning methods like videos, like illustrations, um, short lessons, all of this to actually um, make sure that students get engaged when they study. And then we also grade them, like you say, it's gamified. So we grade them based on their performance. And then we give them points and scores and cars, depending on how they're doing. So what we can see is that a lot of um, teenagers especially find it really engaging and want to continue until they get that, you know, Ferrari, which is the best car. Uh, and and then we also have this leaderboard where they can invite their friends and 
compete against them. So we have like entire classrooms of students competing against each other, which, you know, for some reason, which makes sense because I'm, I'm really competitive. Uh, it works. It works. And we can see that a lot of students have fantastic engagement in our app. And I think that's also partly due to, to the competition of it. But it's not like Grand Theft Auto for one student is going to steal your Ferrari <laughs> and, and just take off with it, right? It's not, it's not like that, right? <laughs> no. No, if you have your Ferrari, it's yours. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. That could be another level of the game. You see, that could be another level of your driver's ed to teach people how to drive like they are in uh, Grand Theft Auto, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you pay, you can take other people's there cars go. that's there a good go. idea <laughs> and, and now you have this video game <laughs> technique that's going to help teach truck drivers how to drive a truck how does that work compared to being in a regular truck yeah so well we're doing the theory part of it so um the fmcsa have updated their the regulations you know because they want to create safer truck drivers so before it's being pretty easy to become um, a CDL driver to drive a CMV, uh, commercial motor vehicle. And now they want to make sure, okay, how do we make sure that the, dr the truck drivers on our roads actually have the skills and the information that they need to become safe drivers? And then they created this training provider registry. And that's where they have these um, providers like Sutobi, um, where an approved theory training provider in the truck training provider registry, which kind which kind of is like we're certified to give certifications to students that have completed their course with us. So if you have a truck driver studying with us after they've passed our final test with a specific score, so we can actually say, okay, this driver has received this score with us. Um, with this, and we have these courses with this information, then we send over that information to the training provider registry, which makes them actually be able to take their test. And then they also have to do behind the wheel training with a, um, a uh, you know, a provider. Yeah. So your, your Zootobi training has to be then more rules of the road, how to drive the truck on the road, what to look out for more so than how to actually get in the truck, start it up, get, start driving around a lot and driving out on the roads, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So how I like to see it is kind of, we create the foundation for these drivers to become safe truck drivers. And then of course they need the practical experience as well. So it's kind of like learning and then applying. But if you don't learn, then it's very difficult to apply. So that's kind of what I, how I think of it, the foundation to become a great truck driver or a great, um, you know, regular driver. Do you teach also some of the practical uh, issues with driving a truck, like reversing a trailer virtually or just <laughs> thinking about it is, is way different than trying to do it. If you've never driven with a trailer and trying to reverse, I mean, everything is backwards. You have to go left to go right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I mean, do you, do you go over any of those things in your training? Uh, so no, not like I think you, you're, you're envisioning it. So we don't have like, we don't have a simulation where, where they can do these things. Uh, our thing, we're more, more, more doing it, the, the theoretical part of it. Because there is a truck driving simulation game that it would, 
you would think it would it would make perfect sense to combine something like that where you can actually drive the truck in a, in a virtual reality world but also get the uh, instruction of what to do in certain situations yeah that's a really good idea if we could add something like that that's that makes total sense to me so I will actually um, suggest your idea to our developers um, but the thing with those apps, it's not, they are not registered. So if you do something like that, it's for the fun, you know, just for the casual experience, learning the maneuvers of it. Um, but you will not be able to get any certificate from it. So we're the first app that can give you a certificate for, for the theory part. Right. And, and there is one of these truck driving uh, video games, if you will. It's an online game, I think. And, and it actually does some of the driving around Colorado. And one of the issues new truck drivers, especially new truck drivers here, have in the Mountain West and in Colorado, we've seen it many times, is mountain driving is tough, especially controlling downhill speed. Does your program go through any issues like that on how to control your truck in, in downhill speed motions, uh, how to slow it down, how to downshift if, if they need to? Yes, of yeah, of course, of course. So that's the type of theoretical thing knowledge that we go through. So drivers have that knowledge and then can apply it when they're driving. And that's like you say, that's an extremely um, big challenge for drivers and also a big risk, a place where they can actually um, be put in danger if their brakes overheat. So we go through the theoretical part. How do you drive downhill um, and make sure to not overheat your brakes? or anything like that. So how do you do it in a safe way? How do you do it depending on what type of vehicle you're driving, um, what weight you're carrying, um, what indoor, you know, so, so depending on what you're driving, we go through the theoretical part of it then. Which, yes. Do you also teach how to, because there might be times a driver is totally out of the out of control, fr freaks out, misses the truck driving the the ramp there that that would allow them to slow down the truck. Do you do you teach in your courses that there may be times just to ditch the truck to 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 turn the wheel real hard and flip it over just so we don't have tragic situations like we had in Colorado many years ago where somebody coming down the hill just was out of control brakes on uh, uh, didn't work for him and just plowed into a, a, a really a line of traffic and killed uh, uh, several people because he didn't take the opportunity to ditch the truck when he had the opportunity to. So I don't know if we have anything specifically like that, but what we do have is that we go through safety practices. So all of the general safety practices that they need to know, kind of that's how that's what we go through. Okay, if you do this, then you need to do this. If you're in this situation, you th should think like this. I don't know if we have that specific situation, but yeah, we go through the safety aspects of it. My guest is Leo Waldenbach. He's the co-founder and head of growth at Zootopia Drivers Ed. We're talking about especially uh, getting a CDL license, a commercial driving uh, license with their Drivers Ed program. You said that you teach other uh, CDL licenses, so not just the big 18-wheelers that we see on the roads, but uh, I presume that you also have programs to teach how to drive a smaller truck, maybe a box truck. How about a bus? Yeah, we do. So... Um, we have all of the endorsements. We have um, the Class A, Class B, Class C license. Um, all of this in our is in our app. And then we also have, you know, the regulations. 
only apply to certain endorsements and certain classes of, of CDL driver's license. And we have, we're on the tra training provider registry for all of them. But then of course, you know, if you want to get any other endorsement, then we also have the knowledge and the theory that you need to um, study for that as well. Um, but some endorsements where you do need to, to select a provider that's on the registry is, you know, passenger bus, hazardous materials or school bus. How long typically does it take to go through your training program? Is it different for uh, driving a car than it is to getting a CDL for the class A, the big trucks or for a bus? How long are those uh, courses going to last? Yeah. Um, so it is more difficult to get through simply because driving um, a commercial um, vehicle, so a CMV, is more dangerous for both you. It's more um, dangerous for other road users. It requires more information. There's more to know. So the, the course is more extensive and we have more questions that you need to go through. And that's also one thing you have to get is minimum passing score of 80% on our final test to even be able to get your certificate so we send it into the training provider registry and that's not something that we have in our car courses and that's simply because you need to know this information to become a cdl driver so yeah i would say that you should go through this kind of in a, a modest tempo so if you you know two weeks is probably a good tempo but of course you can do it faster the thing that that the FMCSA looks at is how you're retaining your information. So if you're a really fast learner, then you can go through the course faster. If you're a slow learner and you go through the course really quickly, then we can expect that you won't retain that information, which is actually what's most important. So I would say retaining the information, um, yeah, it can really vary for, for from driver to driver. Is that 80% uh, pass rate is that uh is that set by the federal government do they want is that is that their requirement is that yours that that's their requirement because i i would think it should be 90 percent. i mean fr frankly you would think that <laughs> you would want the the most educated drivers and the most safe drivers on the road not people who are just scooting past at 80 percent yeah yeah that's a really valid point yeah uh, has your program helped so far yet to increase the number of CDL drivers that we see on the road? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, we have a lot of CDL drivers. You know, we're mo mainly focused on car and teenagers, so that's where we, where our main focus is, and we have hundreds of thousands of teenagers studying with us to get their car license. But for CDL, we're also starting to ramp up, and we see more and more CDL drivers using our app and really benefiting from the gamified um, part of it, especially now that they have to go through these questions to take their test. Um, so they have to find a resource that they actually can study with, that they find a bit fun, and um, something that will get them, you know, and make them actually pass their test. Because at the end of the day, that plus retaining the information is what's most important. And I'm sure that most of the uh, driving courses that are out there right now that somebody would show up to a classroom and, and be taught by an instructor and then get into a truck and, and do the uh, actual hands-on experience. What are the cost differences or are there cost savings to go through your program 
what's that cost compared to maybe a traditional program where I show up at some truck driving school? Yeah, it is cheaper. It is cheaper. With our course, you can get through it for, I think right now, if you're quick, um, just 15 bucks or something like that. Uh, if you're going to choose a traditional course, uh, you should expect to pay much, much more than that. Some of these courses that I've seen are up to $100 or $200. And then, but then, of course, if you have better knowledge, so if you have better theoretical knowledge, then you can faster also learn behind the wheel, which makes you spend less time and money on lessons. So behind the wheel lessons. So it kind of goes hand in hand. But yes, I do think a lot of drivers are saving um, a lot of money um, on our course. Yeah, because some some of the jobs I know uh, when I was talking to the local bus drivers for our school district, uh, I, I as I talked to them, they are are begging people to go work for as a bus driver, and the district will actually pay for a person, an applicant, to go get their CDL. It'd be interesting to see if you could almost fast track that uh, process by doing your online courses and then getting real hands-on experience in a bus and then get on the road a little bit faster. Yeah, yeah, there's a real shortage right now. Um, There's a shortage um, of all types of CDL licenses like school bus, um, you have the regular commercial um, license and vehicles. um, And this is really an issue for America because at the end of the day, trucks are what um, the vehicles that transport our goods that keeps the economy going. So we need truck drivers to be able to keep a good economy. So truck drivers are extremely important. Um, and right now, the shortage is um, getting bigger and bigger. Um, but that's also a good opportunity for a lot of um, people without jobs because then they can pass a relatively simple test, become a truck driver, and then earn a lot of money as well. So um, that's, you know, it, it, it gives an opportunity also to a lot of people if they're willing to take that kind of job. I know your regular driver's ed program helps drivers here in the United States and also across Europe and other parts of the world. Is it the same for your CDL program? Uh, do you have to have different rules driving a truck has to be different i would think in sweden or germany or spain or england than it is here in the united states yeah so all of our courses are tailored to each specific state and each specific country so our course in you know our car course in california is not the same as our car course in florida and of course not the same as our course in england but with cdl We actually only provide CDL training in the US and the UK. So even though we're active in Australia, we're active in Sweden, Germany, France, we only have CDL training for those two countries. And that's because it requires more. You have to get more in depth. And um, yeah, so so the courses are not the same, but we don't provide them in as many locations either. And you're not even going to touch Spain because they're crazy. (laughs) Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's no saving Spain. <laughs> no, no safe space in Spain. Perfect. <laughs> my, my guest is Leah Waldenbach. He's the co-founder and the head of growth at Zootobi Drivers Ed. Uh, taking a huge left turn here with the topics here. Uh, Zootobi also released a, a study talking about um, EV charging stations 
And it's a report called the 2022 EV Charging Station Report State-by-State Breakdown showing how many charging stations there are compared to the population. Now, I have a link to that study in the description of this show, so you can just go there and click on it and read it for yourself as well. Talk a little bit about this study before we get into some of the specifics of the states. Yeah, so we've actually conducted a lot of studies and this is one that's been really requested so evs how are how is each state doing with the ev transition and then we also have some you know teen driving report dui driving report distracted driving report but for this ev um, report what we basically wanted to see is just how is the us doing with the ev transition which states are keeping um, are on track to actually make it and be able to transition to EVs, which states haven't even started. So that's kind of the baseline that we wanted to see. And then also see if there's any trends with um, the charging ports or the charging stations compared to the EVs. And I'm looking at that list right now. And the states with the most charging stations per EVs are North Dakota at number one, followed by Wyoming and Mississippi. All three of those states are very rural, very large, not friendly places to electric vehicles. I wouldn't call Wyoming a robust hotspot for EVs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's extremely true. So that's the main issue with this study, I would say, um, that we compare it to the registered EVs. And when we did this study, North, but that's the only way to actually look at the numbers because we somehow have to compare each state to another state and we can't just compare the total number. So in North Dakota, they only had 220 registered EVs when we did this study. So the numbers become a bit skewed um, and, you know, 139 charging ports. So that's a really good number of charging ports or charging stations per 100 EVs. But of course, if they are going to transition to to electric vehicles, the entire state, then they're hopelessly behind. Um, So um, I completely agree. Um, But I think that the most interesting thing with this study is just to see how many states are hopelessly behind on the transition and how they are going to get wrecked if they continue like this and don't build out their infrastructure. Um, Because what we're starting to see right now is an explosion in registered EVs. Um, So it's going up, you know, in a lot of states in New York, for example, I just brought up the numbers. Um, It's had an increase, you know, in 90% six percent from 2021 to 2022 and then the prior year it was also nearly 100 percent but the charging stations are not keeping up with the increase in evs and we're seeing this trend in basically the entire united states even in california that has been extremely in the forefront of the ev transition so building these charging stations right now we're seeing that the explosion in evs is much much larger than the increase in charging stations and that's going to lead to a huge bottleneck in the future if it continues where people are not going to be able to charge their evs they're not going to be uh, want to have evs because of this so 
uh, unless this is addressed, it's going to be a huge bottleneck and a lot of states won't be able to transition to EVs. Well, because California is number 47 on this list, but they also have, as you were mentioning, a, a massive number of EVs because as part of the study, you have a list of the states with the highest percentage of EV adoption. California has over 425,000 registered EVs, far and above every other state. Uh, the, the next closest state is what? There's Hawaii at 50,000. We have Arizona at uh, almost 29,000. Florida is at uh, almost 60,000. So you have uh, California by leaps and bounds blowing everybody out of the way, but still the EVs as a percentage of automobiles on the road is only 3%. And most of the states are at 2% or less. So it doesn't look like it is a a robust EV economy, even though we are are woefully, as you as you mentioned, behind on the infrastructure. Yeah, that's that's true. So so when I when we look at these numbers, so this study was um, made about a year ago, and then we're going to update it. So this these numbers quickly become outdated as well. So it's going to be a bit higher, but it takes time to change an entire fleet of of um, automobiles because. You know, a regular car is on the road for for decades before it's it's changed. So 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 the cars that are being produced today will be around in ten years. They will be around in twenty years. In thirty years, that's when we can start thinking like that. These cars will be gone. Um, but according to the numbers, only twelve states have more than one percent um, EVs as a percentage of automobiles. So in twelve states you will see one EV per 100 cars, but in the rest, you will have like um, much, much fewer EVs. So the transition has just started. The EV revolution has just started. And even now, a lot of states are barely, barely hanging on. I've been talking about this with other guests in the past about the EV infrastructure, and it it is slowly coming online but there is a problem with electric areas, especially uh, electrifying areas that are in the rural parts of the United States and trying to get those places with an infrastructure that can handle uh, charging. Is, is that one issue that you're seeing as well, that folks are just having a hard time creating a EV infrastructure, whether it's going to be a, a business or a, or a cafe or you know the old traditional truck stop? that has now EV stations that uh, will be able to charge vehicles for long distance hauls? I completely agree. I think this is going to be a massive challenge in the in the coming years. And just as an example, in Texas in 2019, I think um, it was, uh, two huge cities um, had so few EVs that you couldn't get um, drive between them. So I think if you had a... Tesla, so the newest Tesla, I think it was Model S, you couldn't actually drive between Houston and Dallas because you didn't have charging stations that covered that distance. And that's between two huge cities in Texas. So I agree that the infrastructure here is going to be extremely important to make sure that we get it up to track, cover the entire US. But then also we need to have enough EVs that the queues aren't, um, you know, so you don't have to queue for uh, a charging station for one hour, two hour, three hours, because that might happen pretty soon if it's if it doesn't um, 
build up if the production doesn't ramp up faster. Um, so that's a big issue that I see. And, um, you know, one thing that struck me that I think is really interesting when you compare the US to Europe is that in Europe, they have this um, EU mandated law that all charging um, ports have to have a special, you know, um, how to put it? Um, An adapter, maybe? Yeah, yeah, the same adapter. So it works for all EVs. In the US, that's not mandated. So Tesla has one type of adapter, Volkswagen has another. And then right now, um, a infrastructure is being built in the US that doesn't cover all cars or all vehicles. So it creates huge blind spots in the infrastructure in America, just because companies and regulation can't um, make an agreement as to what adapter to use or, or make it mandated that only one is accepted, which for the consumer, for people driving these cars, it would be better. So um, to make it faster to actually build out this infrastructure, I think that um, US, the US should take a look at Europe and that specific law because it really makes it easier to create a vast infrastructure network instead of having to put each um, adapter type of charging station adapter and these charging stations in each city, then you can actually start working together to create a vast and um, expensive network instead. It's a lot like having an iPhone or an Android phone. You, they, they don't, the chargers are not compatible with either phone. So I, I could be at the airport somewhere and if I don't have the right compatible charger, I can't charge up my device. Yeah, and, and that's that's really frustrating, and it's going to make it much more difficult to actually build out this infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, I think that that could be looked at. Yeah, and, and I think we have to also change the way we think about fueling uh, and make it a lot like your cell phone, where you're not always just, in, unless it's at night, where you set your phone next to your bed and it's on that you know, wireless charger where it's going to charge all night, but maybe you're going to be out and about and you might have to stop for five or 10 or 15 minutes to get a little bit of a charge. And then you go about the rest of your drive and then you stop for another 10 or 15 minutes. And so you're not getting full. It's not, you're stopping and going to a hundred percent. You might go from 30% to 48% and then you're going down to 40 and then you go up to 60 and you, you know, you're, you're bouncing back and forth in that, you know, range of not quite all the way full or not all the way empty. Yeah, I completely agree. But once again, then we need the infrastructure to be able to support that. But also one more valid point that you're, you know, with that theory is that um, it goes much um, charging up the first part of your batteries take much goes much faster than the latter part. So up to 80% or something, it goes really quickly. But those last 20% basically take as long as charging up those first 80%. So um, I think we could do with some knowledge transfer and some courses for drivers so that they actually know this so they don't spend twice the amount of time at a charging station and only get 20% extra battery. In that case, it's probably better for everyone if they start driving again and then fill up, you know, up to 80% again. 
But I think there will be a percentage of the population that is not going to want to go EV, and it, they, they probably won't for, for many years. Toyota has not come out and said that they're going full EV. So many of the other car makers, VW and uh, you know General Motors and so, some big car makers have come out and said, we are just going to do away with the internal combustion engine. But Toyota has been the biggest automaker to say, we're still going to be making what we make, and we're going to do it for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that might work in a few states, but in a lot of the bigger ones, I know that California, New York, they have now newly um, created state legislation that will mandate EVs by 2035. Um, so but I could case, drive to another state and go buy the a, a truck or a car there and then bring it back and register it in California. Yeah, maybe that's possible. Yeah, I, I don't know about... Um, if that's something you can do, but yeah, that might be true. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Toyota is obviously a worldwide automaker and you see their trucks all over uh, Africa, Europe, uh, and, you know, throughout the Middle East, you, you see their trucks all over the place. So uh, those are the kind of places, those uh, less developed countries that are still going to be using uh, gasoline engines and, and cars and trucks for probably a dozen, 20, 50 years. Yeah, yeah, most likely. I completely agree. And building out the infrastructure there is going to be extremely difficult, you know, in a lot of countries, because even in the US, we're seeing huge issues building out this infrastructure. And one more thing to consider here is that I think if if we don't start ramping up the production of um, charging stations, a lot of people are going to be extremely um, angry <laughs> when they have their EV, because they think everything is going to be you know, sun and roses, and then it kind of turns out it's not quite like that because they're just standing in the rain waiting to charge up their EV for an hour. So I think that's going to come as a shock to a lot of people and it's going to come um, as a shock to a lot of states as well. And uh, yeah, right now it just kind of feels like it's it's the decisions aren't really taken, you know, with the long horizon view so right now it's just okay we need to make sure to to have regulation in place to make sure that we have 100 percent evs by 2035 but then it's kind of like okay how do we have the infrastructure to actually sustain that kind of change right now it's it's where, when is that change going to happen right now there's nothing that suggests that um the states are ramping up like that. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be quite different in two, three years if the you know production is going to start ramping up by then. But when looking at the numbers right now, it's it's not going to be possible. So so I, I expect to see great some really huge changes in this um, space the coming years, or otherwise we're setting impossible goals. And, and you know. Ch- Let's say your car will say, or or the auto manufacturer will say, you can get 300 miles on this vehicle in one charge. Well, that is at optimal driving conditions and optimal temperatures uh, and driving styles. Because uh, I know for driving an EV for the last 10 years, temperature, whether hot or cold, your driving style, whether you're on the highway or on a side street and how 
fast or slow you're going, uh, what kind of a load you have in the vehicle, all of it changes what that range will be. So your 300 miles on a really cold day when you're trying to plow through some snow and you have a couple of people or some heavier stuff in your truck, you're going to be dropping that, uh, that 300 miles down by about 40%. Yeah, yeah, it, it really can vary quite a lot. So yeah, it's going to be extremely interesting to see. And, and I hope that we're able to make it and that, you know, everything goes fine. But I just think it's time to, to start um, putting some words into action right now and make sure that it's, it's something we can do. Have you folks at Zootobi, as I'm talking to Leo Waldenbach, co-founder and head of growth there at Zootobi, looked at uh, hydrogen and hydrogen-fueled vehicles and what that would uh, entail and, and how that might be a better option than just electric battery uh, vehicles? It's not something we have looked at, no. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I still think that might be a better option for folks like my, my wife, who will forget at, at night to plug into her car uh, and then go out driving, and then she has 15 miles to try to make it for a 50-mile trip or, you know, go out and about. So th- those are the kind of people who just want to be able to stop at a gas station because it's a last-minute thing, stop for five minutes, fuel up, and then keep going about their day that would really be – helped out by hydrogen technology yeah yeah that's now that you say it i haven't even thought of that before but that's really interesting yeah the people that forget maybe it's going to be very difficult for them like they have work at eight they wake up at seven and then like oh i forgot to charge my car yeah that's that that's going to be a future problem that's that's 100 um so yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see you also have a report that states, I, I think something that uh, is is from Captain Obvious. Uh, men are more likely to be involved in a fatal, distracted driving uh, incident than women. I mean, really, it, it seems like it's just confirmation of what seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah, um, so, yeah, that's true. But the difference is so huge. That's what shocked me. So, um, and also I have been reading, you know, I, I'm... Uh, like everyone else, I'm on the internet, so I see all of these videos. And as I have seen before, so before I started looking at the statistics, I've always seen these like videos where the comments are like, you see a crash and then you see comments, oh, it must be a woman driving or it must be a female driver. And then I kind of assumed, okay, so the statistics must, must say that females are, are worse at driving. And then when I started looking at these statistics, I'm like, wait, that's it's it's not even true and it's in fact it's completely the opposite men are much much more dangerous so like some of the statistics in distracted driving is three times as likely in drunk driving it's nearly four times as likely to be involved in a fatal accident and you know everything from speeding to um tailgating aggressive driving all of these behaviors are um, men who are much more likely to, to be d- doing them. So I kind of received some uh, a shock there because simply because the internet is so uh, towards the, uh, yeah, yeah, towards that side. Uh, well, insurance companies uh, knew this all along because <laughs> the most in- expensive 
uh, drivers to insure are especially young men, ages basically 16 to 23, 24. You can't even rent a car until you're 25. And so it's really young men who are the most expensive because they're doing crazy things because young (laughs) men do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I don't know how to fix it, but I hope it gets fixed because statistics, I mean, everything now, it's such, so interesting to see the statistics, but everything is just going kind of like uh, in the wrong direction now since COVID. And we've seen like a clear trend shift in a lot of this. So in teenage fatalities, it's up 20% year by year. It's expected to go up even more. Um, we have overall uh, fatalities up over 2,000 fatalities between 2019, 2020, um, or 2020, 2021. Uh, and then we have, you know, drunk driving fatalities up by over 15%. So we're just seeing all of these driving statistics kind of like skyrocket after Corona. And it just seems now this year is expected to be even worse than before. So it's kind of like with COVID kicked something off, and it's not something that's good. I, I was surprised hearing as well that only 13% of these fatal distracted driving crashes can be attributed to a mobile phone. It seems like the mobile phone is so ingrained in, in people's behavior, especially now while they're driving, that that number would have been much, much higher. Yeah, I completely agree. I was also a bit shocked, but distracted driving accidents are also difficult to um, measure. So compared to drunk driving fatalities, then you can just take a blood test and you can see if they've been drinking or not. Uh, Distracted driving accidents, that's more difficult to measure. You need to have some kind of evidence that they've been driving distracted um, or, you know, Either though it's it's verbal or you can find something on a crash scene or at a crash scene. So it's more difficult to, to see. But one thing that also strikes me with telephones is that the use of telephones drastically increased the severity of the accident. So this is also one of the main, um, you know, one of the things with cell phones. They are only 13% of the distracted driving accidents that we can measure. Um, but they... they they are, you know, when looking at the amount of fatalities, they have a much larger portion of the distracted driving fatalities because we can see that they, when using a mobile phone, the crash se- severity of the accident increases. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, I completely agree because when I go out um, and see a driver, I see mobile phones glued to their face almost always so to me i was also extremely um surprised to see those statistics i think there's that saying called a dead man tells no tales and so that would be (laughs) a perfect example of not knowing if somebody is distracted or what they were doing in their car uh unless it is blatantly blatantly obvious that uh uh, what they whatever they were doing that caused the uh the fatal crash yeah so what studies are you folks working on in the future? What can we look forward to from Zootobi here in the next few weeks, months? Um, well, we are going to do our annual teen driving 
um, reports. We're going to do our annual distracted driving, drunk driving reports. And then we're also going to now start making specific EV-related reports. So we're going to look at emerging trends. We're going to look at um, the change in um, critical infrastructure versus a change in, in EVs. So a whole, I would say, a lot of the good stuff we've already had relating to driver safety, but then also a whole new, a whole lot of new reports related to specifically now this EV transition and trying to find as many angles as possible to actually um, look at the data and see where we're going. And you can find all that information on Zootobi.com. It's Z-U-T-O-B-I.com. Again, I'll have a link to the studies that we talked about as well as Zootobi.com. The driver's ed uh, classes, all that stuff in the description of this show. I, I'm I'm uh, thankful that you uh, decided that you were on vacation in Spain and you would still talk to me uh, <laughs> here while you're trying to re- get some rest and relaxation. Uh, what was the what's what did you when you went to Spain? What what was the major thing you wanted to do? Just go to the beach, go to a bullfight. What what did you do in Spain? Yeah, go to the beach, definitely, and then eat some nice fish. I would say that's um, just taste the cuisine here, so the nice fish, the seashells, they have amazing um, seafood. And then, you know, in Sweden this time of year, um, at least for my part, I look... So, you know, I've lost all color. Um, (laughs) I look like a ghost. So I really need a vacation the sun to get some some nice tan and looking alive again. Yeah, you're actually going back to Sweden where it's going to be dark a lot of the a lot of the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Now in Sweden, you know, the sun goes up, I would say at around 11 or 10 and then it goes down you know 10 a.m yeah and then it goes down at 1 2 possibly 3 p.m so wow you don't get a lot of sun and most of that time it's cloudy as well so it's it's truly depressing depressing <laughs> I, I i i looked at some of the statistics for december and i think it's estimated that you know in sweden in december we get one hour of sunlight every day so yeah <laughs> i just can't imagine i just can't. <laughs> i just can't even though here in colorado we get our share fair share of snowstorms uh we still get all even all winter long it is it can be bright and sunny and actually quite pleasant yeah yeah maybe i should move there there you go uh we'd love to have you uh <laughs> yeah. well leah waldenbach the co-founder and head of growth at zootobi driver's ed thanks again for uh, coming on thanks for all your expertise uh pleasure chatting with you and enjoy the rest of your uh your holiday there in spain yeah thank you jason so much for having me it's been great to be on the show again and i would love to to come back once more well i'm sure we can arrange that but it might be a bit down the road. Uh, I, I did put a link to our original conversation back from November 2020. It was episode number 187 in the description of this show if you want to go back and check that one out. By the way, I touched on this with Leo, but the electric utility company called National Grid, they released a study on requirements for electric vehicle charging stations along long-distance highways with a focus on heavy trucks, and the findings that got the most attention was this sentence. The charging capacity required to supply a large passenger vehicle travel center truck stop 
will be roughly equivalent to the electric load of a small town. That is a problem right now. That's a huge problem with our infrastructure and our electric grid. Now, that electric highway study report reached six main conclusions. Number one, a typical highway electric vehicle charging site will eventually need 20 or more fast chargers. Number two, while light-duty EV cars and SUVs will drive electric load increases in the near term, medium to heavy electric vehicles will greatly increase charging needs in the medium-long term. By 2045, over 75% of average daily energy needs will likely come from medium and heavy vehicles. That is astounding. Number three, the high levels of demand will require connections to the high-voltage transmission system at many highway-fast charging sites. So you're talking about those really large transmission lines uh, that you might see across the country somewhere. Number four, hence, where possible, locate highway EV chargers next to existing transmission lines. Number five, build the grid interconnection once and build it right, rather than planning on a series of upgrades. In other words, don't be cheap when you start these things out. Build them right the first time and w- without thinking that, oh, I'll be able to expand it in the future because that rarely ever happens right. And number six, due to the long timelines for upgrading transmission lines, preparation for large sites should begin immediately so we can have them soon. It's, it's It takes so much time. I mean, it seems logical, but will the United States have enough electric, uh, electricity capacity to meet the projected need for an all-electric motor vehicle fleet by 2050? I mean, we're talking about 25 years from now or, or, or even another 10 years after that, 2060. Second is, will the battery electric uh, vehicles be the most cost-effective approach especially for heavy, long-distance trucks? Will it be a better idea to move away from that or use uh, some other form of energy? The American Transportation Research Institute, I get emails from them all the time, they looked at three propulsion systems for trucks, either an internal combustion engine, ICE engine, as, as you've heard me talk about, the battery electric, which most vehicles that are coming online now are, you'll hear the EVs, but really they're battery electric vehicles, BEVs, and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, the FCEVs. Now, the conclusion was that the ICE overall carbon footprint was 3.7 million pounds, the battery electric vehicle was 2.6 million, and the hydrogen fuel cell vehicles was just 2 million pounds. In addition, due to the enormous weight of the batteries that have to be put into a, especially a large vehicle like a semi-truck, the payload capacity of a big rig, it it was then reduced significantly less than that of one that was powered by hydrogen fuel. So hydrogen fuel cells seem more likely to be the way to end up with an electrified big rig. But you then have to have uh, an infrastructure of hydrogen fuel cells. And whether you're going to get that from changing water into hydrogen and then back, uh, you know, or, or, you know, using electricity because you'll still use electricity to create 
hydrogen at these hydrogen fuel cell areas because uh, you can't, you, we're not just pumping it out of the ground. Uh, you, you have to make it. And usually it takes electricity to make the hydrogen. Um, and so how will that play into the whole thing? And are, then are you using uh, electricity, basically double the fuel, the electricity to make the hydrogen instead of just using the electricity in the battery of the vehicle than to power the vehicle. So, uh, you know, be, be, stronger and smarter minds than mine are working on this, I'm sure. Uh, top, top men, as they said in Indiana Jones. Uh, again, all you know, time will tell with all this stuff, but I'm sure it'll... It'll all work out in the end, I suppose. And if it doesn't, well, I'm not going to be around to, to really care. Uh, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. <laughs>